Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents Podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today's episode is a grab bag where we discuss an important topic in military justice. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding a criminal trial, and listener discretion is advised. Before we begin this special grab bag episode of Criminal Law Presents, we'd just like to say thank you to all the listeners, especially those who have provided so much positive feedback for this podcast. Also, as we are in the midst of a moving season for the military, we'd like to give special thanks to those members of the criminal law faculty here who have helped get this podcast off the ground. To Major Sarah Nicholson, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Besky, and Major Josh Mickelson, We'll miss you on the faculty, and thank you for your outstanding contribution to this podcast. Thank you to Lieutenant Colonel Jeremy Broussard for taking time off from your duties as Vice Chair of the Department, putting your evidence professor hat back on, and helping us. Thank you to Lieutenant Colonel Sean Lister for not only forcefully supporting our initiative, but also hopping on an episode. You are truly a lion, Sean. And a very special thanks to Major Steve Dre. We started thinking of outreach ideas, and you had the vision for this podcast and the drive to get it off the ground. This podcast wouldn't have happened without your determination and demonstrably outstanding intellect as you hopped on episodes across so many areas of the law. To all of our departing team members, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Most importantly, thank you to all of our listeners across the field and the fleet. You make all the effort that goes into this podcast a worthwhile investment in our practice of law. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special grab bag episode where we highlight a special moment here at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We just held the 50th Kenneth J. Hodson Lecture in Criminal Law, and we're honored to have our speaker for this year, Colonel Retired Larry Morris, sit down for a quick interview. This lecture is named in honor of Major General Kenneth J. Hodson. Over a span of 30 years from 1942 through his appointment as TJAG in 1967 to his retirement in 1971, General Hodson made many substantial contributions to the school and to the practice of military criminal law. After retiring from the Army as TJAG, General Hodson was immediately recalled to active duty to serve as Chief Judge of the newly created Army Court of Military Review, now known as the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. General Hodson served as Chief Judge until 1974. Our speaker for this year, Colonel Retired Larry Morris, currently serves as the Chief of Staff and Counselor to the President of the Catholic University of America. He joined the university after nearly 30 years in the U.S. Army. He served as the Chair of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the Staff Judge Advocate at the 10th Mountain Division at Fort Drum, New York, and the Staff Judge Advocate at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. He served as the Chief of the U.S. Army Trial Defense Service and the Chief Prosecutor of Military Commissions at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The topic for this year's lecture was Military Justice in Transition. Without any further ado, we hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Jeremy Broussard, Vice Chair of the Criminal Law Department here at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. And I have the pleasure of sitting here with retired Colonel Larry Morris. Colonel Morris, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Uh, Now, 
For those of you who may not know, Colonel Moore, soon after he retired, wrote a book about military justice called Military Justice, A Guide to the Issues. And as a young trial counsel looking for something to, to know about the practice I was about to go into in military justice, I read his book. So, sir, thank you again. You literally wrote maybe not the book, but a book on military justice that helped me. And I think it's a lot of it is still very true and applicable today. Now, sir, you retired in 2009 after a nearly 30-year military career, trying cases as a litigator, teaching judge advocates and commanders about military justice while you were the chair here at the criminal law department. We in the court tend to think that the changes we're seeing nowadays are the first time that the UCMJ has changed since 1950, or that the JAG Corps has never changed until now, not since 1775. And, and for that reason, sometimes we need a sense of perspective. Looking back on your career, sir, what, what big changes did you see in our system as a judge advocate? You know, the uh, <clears throat> two of the bigger changes from the middle of the century, <clears throat> excuse me, had happened or were occurring as I came on active duty in the early 80s. So the, you know, the UCMJ was all taken for granted. I think of the things we walked through the door and didn't question about it all. But uh, the area of a lot of flux was jurisdiction because the O'Callaghan case had come down and we spent all those years fighting back and forth, figuring out these Relford factors and everything else. So that was a real dynamic area of the law. The biggest change in terms of the integrity of the system and all that, though, I think was uh, the fielding of the Independent Trial Defense Service. Uh, when I was offered, you know, as I was coming into the JAG Corps, there's, they give you a designated time to call the guy who tells you where you're going to land. And uh, I remember calling in and him listing, saying you could go to Fort, Ho Fort Hood, Fort Sill, Fort Leonard Wood, or uh, Fort Riley. I was like waiting for him to say Germany, and I think it may have not been on his index card. So, but then he said, uh, if you go to Fort Sill, we have this new organization called the Trial Defense Service, and it'll get you into court quicker. And I just said that I'm going to Oklahoma. Uh, so the the fielding of that and the gaining of trust and integrity in the defense function was probably the biggest change during my time. Was that an easy change in your experience, uh, having this independent trial defense service that was not part of an OSJA, not part of that chain of command? You know, I was, of course, the, the true rookie, so and probably a little idealistic, and I just I took the army at its word. When I remember even that short exchange with that officer, Major Rosenblatt, on the phone that day, that uh, that they meant what they said, and and therefore spent my time as a defense counsel. You know, uh, I guess you're you're not really fearless if you have no fear. You're just sort of confident uh, that uh, that there's like a structural integrity to it all. So that therefore bringing motions, uh, you know, litigating hard. Uh, wasn't much discouraged. I remember a confrontation I had once with a lieutenant colonel who was a training battalion commander and thinking, you're really out of line in what you expect of a defense counsel and kind of grasping for the right words to say that. Uh, so I don't think it was stumble-free. And there was sometimes an undercurrent of, I had a, a really great case-trying partner. I was in a four-person TDS office at Fort Sill and a guy who was just out of the basic course right after mine. And we were really fast friends and and collaborators. Uh, and uh, this, this, we there would get a little undercurrent of all right, you guys, you like, you can only take things so far. But by and large, the the more senior the person was, the more serious they were because they saw it as key to the trust of the, in the system. And 
if soldiers don't trust the system, and no matter how clean your rules look on paper, it, it doesn't matter in the actual execution of justice, I think. So that introduction of the Independent Trial Defense Service, rather, is part of the expansion of rights for service members across all the services. In the Hudson Lecture today, you talked about how some have been derisive and called that the civilianization of the military, but you said actually it's more of a judicialization of the military. Could, could you expand on that? The, I, I don't think we're in a situation where <clears throat> where there's too much there, support for just becoming a, a clone of the civilian system. Uh, I, I think the, the accumulated, continued accumulation of legitimacy has had that kind of fall off. There are still critics who would like us to like take all all uh, felonies that aren't uh, military-related offenses and just export them to the civilian world. But I think that's a hope. I don't think there's a basis in law, and I don't think there's much of a basis in our performance uh, to make that happen. Um, so, so in general, I think the the changes have have rooted themselves in in a level of acceptance based on performance. So I want to get that <clears throat> sense of perspective from you again. Going back to 1950 and his signed statement enacting the Uniform Code of Military Justice, President Harry Truman wrote in part, the code is one of the outstanding examples of unification in the, in the armed forces and is tangible evidence of the achievements possible by the coordinated teamwork of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard. Listeners, this is a little bit before Space Force. Uh, President Truman went on to write that the democratic idea of equality is further advanced. Sir, do you believe that the UCMJ is still advancing this democratic ideal of equality? I think so in that the focus still ultimately is on fair and efficient discipline. So it is both of those things. It's, it's a, um, <clears throat> it is a serious disciplinary operation that accounts for the fact that the military is not a clone, that the military is, as we hear for those years, a separate society, properly so. So the hard work is to figure out in what respects does the military legitimately deviate from the civilian system in a way that serves justice and does not compromise people's faith in the system. Now you think of, and so there's probably some like legal term that describes that, but I think it's you just it's kind of the rank and file sense that yeah that was about right like that guy got a fair shake you mm -hmm. know not that I would have kicked him out or sent him home or whatever it is but mm -hmm. you know probably had it coming and they probably handled it in a way that that sort of overall rings true so so all of us practitioners are are kind of the custodians of that legacy. It is breakable. You have, if you have too many of any of these cases that we look at, you know, dating from the Aberdeen scandals of 90s, right? Uh, 80s to 90s. And and any number of standalone uh, deviations. But on the whole, in the main, by the ways we normally measure, uh, I think it is, it is still to Truman a, a fundamental fundamentally consistent with justice. And of course, Truman himself had a couple of acute perspectives um, based on having been subject to the code as a lieutenant and as a captain. And then, of course, issuing the order not far in time from uh, from signing the UCMJ that uh, um, desegregated the, 
military. Right. So he was taking action on behalf of the greater society uh, when taking that action regarding the military. There is a, a letter that he wrote. I have not been able to find it. I was looking again in preparation for talking. Um, that he wrote as a lieutenant about like what a Mickey Mouse system this justice system is, and I and I I've been in the Truman Archive, so I I'm determined to find it, but haven't yet. But you had a guy whose head was in the game. You know the the other thing I had mentioned was you know the first uh, the Court of Military Appeals mm -hmm. was was created, uh, and uh, he personally interviewed the candidates and made right. personal selection of who who would be the first slate of them realizing the first guys are indispensable to mm -hmm. getting this right. So speaking of getting it right, I want to talk about this, the, the, the inherent tension in the balance in our, our system. Uh, military justice as a form of maintaining and preserving good order and discipline, but also ensuring uh, due process for someone accused with a crime. So there's this inherent tension between this democratic idea of equality that Truman talked about uh, 73 years ago with our hierarchical command-driven military society, not necessarily democratic in nature. Um, are we getting this right, you think, based on your experience and your research in terms of that balance in our system? In what, what aspect of it in particular? Well, with regard to the idea of having sufficient rights, but also having a, a speedy enough process so that not only is justice being done, but there is the appearance of justice being done to help maintain and or restore that good order and discipline. You know, I, I think about right. Uh, we do still at times take a long time to get what is for us a long time to get a small number of cases through the system. So you hear commanders and judges at times say, like, you know, you guys are you're trying every case like it's the Lindbergh kidnapping or something, you know, uh, you know, to which a defense response is, I'm not here to be an agent of efficiency. You know, I'm, I'm here to take care of this client of mine. Uh, and I think there are, there are there are fewer obstacles to efficiency in the system than there had been before. But I also think efficiency can't be the paramount measure because soldiers are still vulnerable to command influence and command overreach. And so a certain amount of 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 uh, protection comes into the military system that you don't have in the outside world. And we were talking before, right? Article 31 is broader than Miranda. Uh, Article 27 is broader than Gideon versus Wainwright. Uh, Article 32 used to be, you know, the, this great soldier-friendly, justice-friendly uh, operation that now has been really sliced back. So I think we have it about right, but I think... Uh, uh, I think in that area in particular, you know, I, I think the, the move to, uh, to reduce the, the quality of the Article 32 is a mistake. Uh, and I want to speak a little bit about this idea that we, we have it right now, but uh, of course there's change coming. There is a new Office of the Special Trial Council, which, which goes into effect across the services this December. Uh, with judge advocates now making the decision instead of commanders regarding whether or not to prosecute certain offenses. Essentially, they're called cover offenses. The shorthand is, you know, homicide, sex crimes, domestic violence, additionally, sexual harassment and kidnapping. Do you think discussing how you think we have it about right now with regard to soldiers' rights, uh, good order and discipline, does this kind of throw a wrench into the works or will this be something that the services will just adjust and adapt and overcome? 
I think society presumes on us, and often with good reason, to just figure stuff out and get it right. I don't think this this set of changes, I don't think is is obviously what right or or an obvious consequence of some systemic abuse, which we have to recognize there was. You know, there's always this, you brought it on yourself aspect of the worst of counsel manipulating the system or victims in a way that's improper, unjust, and such a distortion that then some politicians, which is their right to do, they're elected people and they write the rules that govern the military. So it's it's a totally lawful exercise. But uh, it drives, it has driven them to a sledgehammer like this. There may be something more close to a scalpel could have could have achieved the same. So it is on the practitioners to now work that because other other potential justice distorting factors can come in as well. It's a whole different kind of command influence, but it is still influence. The, the secretary of the army, you know, a, a political appointee. Is, is going to make these final decisions. Uh, and then finally, the distinction between covered offenses and not. You know, tell me why kidnapping is in the left column, but selling crack is in the right column. Uh, and you know, des- domestic violence is in the left column, but a, you know, a big-time thief, seller of drugs, mm-hmm. is in the other column. So this morning, you described this new OSTIC change, uh, it's changing rather, just advocates from a support role to now the decision makers, which is this is a new unique new role for us as judge advocates, and as you just said, ironically, commanders are now making the recommendations as to how the case should be disposed of. Uh, just knowing your experience advising commanders who themselves were the decision makers, this role reversal. Do you see this as something that we, as a service, can easily transition to? I don't know about easily, but yes, mm. can. <clears throat> it is. It just takes the. The, like the, the calm and insight and preparation and discipline and, and listening skill of hearing from the people who are the determinants of the legitimacy of the system, the commanders who now have less authority than they had, and we at least know that that's so, right, uh, will invest or reinvest in the system. And in that sense, the people who are advising them about that investment are us, are you guys, right? So for them to see that this STC is still an agent of, of discipline and com- combat, combat effectiveness, I mean, ultimately what it is, you know, General Altenberg says combat effectiveness is a better term than good order and discipline because that's become kind of hackneyed. Uh, and the best of commanders are, are most concerned about an effective fighting force. So this, this thing available to them, this disciplinary package of stuff, now has changed its nature in some ways so that you, the commander, have given up some direct direct control over that. But who has it now is your former best friend, your counsel, who still is your partner in justice. So it is on us to be able to explain all that in a way that doesn't like flaunt it from our standpoint. Now I've got the authority because I still only have the authority in this set of cases. But we're running, if not a bifurcated system, uh, at least a two-component system that you that judge advocates will be the kind of the interpreters, you know, the bilingual people who can operate in both realms and maintain commander confidence. And I don't mean just like a feel-good confidence, but a, like a, a full investment in it 
so that the judge advocates making those decisions get the continued benefit of the advice and enthusiastic input of the commander. So one of the questions you were asked today by the audience, which I thought was a great question, so I'm asking again, is the challenge this OSTIC will have in keeping these commanders engaged uh, in our current system, the one, the, the legacy system, uh, I guess, would be what it's called. Sometimes commanders, particularly those company commanders or battalion commanders, could feel overwhelmed with all the options they were presented, all the different courses of action being recommended by their judge advocates. And some of them have a sense of relief now that this cup is passing from them in terms of making the decision regarding UCMJ. Uh, how would you suggest, though, that these young up-and-coming judge advocates who are going to be going into the OSTIC, um, how would they keep these commanders engaged and invested in these military decisions that they'll be making? And, and that is it's such an interesting insight <clears throat> to hear uh, from you guys raising that question because it is it is so critical. You know, the best design system, I mean, so the effectiveness of the system doesn't so much depend on a chart on the wall as the people who populate it and actually make it work. So it is really like the most enlightened and soft touch leadership by judge advocates in first reaffirming the primacy of the command perspective. You know, not in all, not in all times perspective doesn't equal authority to refer a case and that kind of stuff anymore, right? But still that perspective. And then uh, an informed and open guidance in executing the new system. So, so it's like, we're not going to let you, you know, any captain who calls, and yet that's, these conversations will truly happen, right? The, the uh, captain trial counsel calls a leader, and the leader's like, hey, man, I, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that anymore. And then you just, like, grab them through the phone. And, I mean, you really just explain you, your input isn't optional. It's critical to my carrying out discipline in this case or to provide advice to the deciders who, who eventually decide. Um, which means more study and like the way the way that Jack Herbal trained us and all. We should just be wargaming all kinds of scenarios and and uh, speed bumps and everything else in there. But uh, so I want to be respectful and 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 just you know keep the commander engaged there. Uh, you can steer that process so the commander doesn't just look with befuddlement at what I consider this this wonderfully rich spectrum of, of disciplinary options and say, my sense, ma'am, sir, is that we're landing about here. Here's what's in my head on that. Why don't you let me know? Because these other things would be possible as well. So I think this is the kind of thing that would call for a general court-martial, but you know, if, if your sense is whatever factors might be, special court is available. If there's some other you know factor here where speed is most important and we're not so com comfortable with our evidence, maybe administrative as an option. So so we're not just like a conduit, like takes information from here and passes it on. We have to like add value to it. Uh, so the the like our, our most valuable person is the person who's counseling the commander at the point of entry. Uh, and if you can properly shape the thinking process there, then as you work your way deeper into uh, into the decision process, all of those who receive this information uh, will receive it in, a, in an orderly way that tees up an issue for resolution. Uh, this morning, you discussed the idea of creating a, a purple judiciary comprised of judges from across the services. 
who could be treating uh, or trying cases across the services. So, for example, a Navy judge could hear an Army during court-martial. Um, there's no real procedural differences between the services, and any cultural differences are, are very minor with regard to UCMJ. Do you envision one day there being the purple office of the Special Trial Council? In other words, just really the judge advocates serve uh, Secretary of Defense or the greater DOD, and it really almost becomes irrespective of the service branch with regard to the cases they try. I think it's probably that has gone through the heads of the people who advocated for and shaped the process initially. I try not to react just on the idea of it wasn't what I worked under, so it mustn't be a good idea. Um, but uh, I think the the change in the judiciary would be a less abrupt change than a change in this STC process that hasn't even yet been fielded. Uh, and I don't, I'm not even like the most ardent advocate of the appropriate judiciary. It is just coming to make sense because we've elevated now significantly the role of ju the judiciary in, in the, with the judge alone business. Um, but to there, there are legitimate service-specific factors that are helpful, not always determinative, but helpful in thinking through the path of a case. So to go to a purple STC would be one more complicator, one more step away from a from a from a tight comprehension of who your leaders would be. So we, compared to some of the other changes, not as radical, but again. Not soon, not soon, because we need this pause just to field the current system and give it time to breathe. So as we close, I want to call your attention to one thing you said this morning, which really stood out regarding your challenge to practitioners to, quote, create conditions for successful implementation of fundamental change in the military justice system. And you said that was similar to how our line officers and other military leaders create conditions for success on the battlefield. And I think it's a great reminder that as judge advocates, in addition to being lawyers, we're also officers and leaders in our court, in our respective services. Uh, our audience is made up of military justice leaders, justice practitioners, aspiring judge advocates. How should people best prepare themselves to help create the conditions for a successful implementation of fundamental change wherever they are? Get as deep as you can in this new system as fast as you can and talk about it and drill about it. Uh, there, It is now our job to execute on changes that were made, uh, I mean, they're made in good faith by you know members of Congress, but made based at least in part on flamboyant deviations from the system. The system is essentially sound and working soundly, broadly across the board. Uh, but now it's the job to understand the congressional intent and to be able to redirect, to the extent we have to only, the training and preparation of counsel and the way cases are prepared and pursued. I mean, the JAG court did its smart thing to start with uh, by putting you know, such a highly esteemed person in that role as the, as the STC. You know, uh, and it has to be just uh, particularly careful in these early times with the assignment of counsel. You know, part of it is legal competence, but every judge advocate is legally competent. Uh, a lot of the rest of it is, you know, our old Article 25 factors. You know, the key one is judicial temperament, you know, something that just goes to uh, the integrity, wisdom, and guidance of the best of our people. 
and have to be now focused on on making that that system that you know is still on paper into something that serves soldiers and serves the command. Retired Colonel Larry Morris, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, and I'm glad to do it. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thank you.